0: This week on the Back Table Podcast.
1: I think many of us believe in this vision that the best practice of otolaryngology is when the needs are understood, the infrastructure is good, that the people doing the practice, delivering the care are led by people and take care of people, that it's all representative, that it's not just one group taking care of another group, training another group you know we see this in science we see this in leadership you know we see these studies and these papers and it makes sense there's a fairness element to it which is unambiguous but there's a quality element that will ultimately be the driver so how do we do that
2: hey everybody welcome to the backtable ent podcast uh, my name is ashley agan i'm a general ent in dallas texas
0: And my name is Gopi Shah. I'm a pediatric
2: ENT. How are you doing today, Ash? Hey, Gopi. I'm always good and happy to be across the mic from you. It's a good day. It's a good Saturday morning when I get to chat (laughs) with you and see you. Um, And we have a great show today, too. We have Dr. Almirati, professor and chief of laryngology at the University of Washington in Seattle. He has clinical expertise in office-based and operative laryngology, including complex airway, voice, and swallowing. And he's here today to talk to us about the future otolaryngologist. Who is that? How do we train them and the likes? Uh, welcome to the show, Dr. Marati.
1: Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've admired what you and your team have done to really connect with folks all over. And uh, it's a special treat to be here.
0: Oh, Thank you for taking the time. We've been tagging you since the very beginning on the socials, So we appreciate you allowing us to always <laughs> tag you with
2: every episode release. Thank you for sharing our um, episodes. First, can you just tell our audience about yourself, your story, your practice?
1: Well, thank you. My name's Al Mirati, and I grew up here in Seattle, Washington, where I actually work now. I am an otolaryngologist who trained here in Seattle, the University of Washington, did residency at University of California, San Diego, part of which was the NIH or NIDCD training track, which will play into our discussion later, and have pursued laryngology after my fellowship at Vanderbilt, have practiced at University of Kansas, at Medical College of Wisconsin, and then back home here in Seattle for the last 15 years at the University of Washington. That's my clinical journey, and I guess my professorial journey. I've had the privilege of having other roles in otolaryngology in society medicine, basically, uh, you know, our different specialty societies, the American broncho Association, the ALA, Laryngologic, and then probably most conspicuously as president of our American Academy of Laryngology in 2018 and 19.
0: So you would think that we would want to do a clinical laryngology topic with you, and we, we tried, we wanted to, but I think that you have maybe some passion in terms of Medical education, resident education, and sort of who we are. Tell us a little bit about how you've been involved in training programs, training future otolaryngologists, mentorship, et cetera.
1: Yeah, thank you. I think lots and lots of folks are really good at this, and lots and lots of folks have a passion. My perspectives on it, on this topic of like like who walks through the door of otolaryngology, you know, whether they're looking at the house from the outside and what are they interested in you know, as they knock on the door or they see the open door, you know, insert proper imagery here, you know, and what their experience is. And how do we get folks excited or how do we identify folks who are excited and find the best support for them as people like you and I, all three of us who do this for a living, you know, we want to continue to have a lovely field. We want to have a great community. We want to support our communities locally, regionally, nationally, internationally. So I think my interest hasn't been just the light bulb, right? That magic that people feel when people talk about, I love training. I love teaching it's pure, but it's really about them, right? I mean, it's really about the joy they feel in seeing a light bulb over the other person's head. I mean, it's, it's connecting, right? It's not taking from others, it's giving, but it's still about us, um, which is lovely. But, you know, as I kind of look at the field and, you know, this imagined house and the door that people walk through, I really am curious and hopeful about kind of where we're going in the long run. What does otolaryngology 2030, 2040, 2050 look like? And so with my perspective in training and academics and then as a practitioner and then from my perspective in organized otolaryngology, you know, I have some thoughts and observations to share as we go along.
2: Yeah. I like the house analogy. I think right now with it being so competitive, um, most students are not even going to knock on the door. <laughs> they just walk by the house and say, wow, that, that, that's a long shot. I mean, I do a lot of medical student advising. And, um, you know, the first question is always, is it too late? I'm just now deciding I want to do ENT. And I don't know if I've done enough research. Like, you know, I, don't, I just don't think that my application is going to be strong enough. I'm not good enough. And so I feel like we don't even get to, you know, spend time just sharing the joy of it and deciding like, okay, is this really a good fit? Like, let me show you how cool this field could be. Because some of them are almost like, I don't even want to fall in love with this because I don't think I can get in, you know? I don't know. I guess it's a, a good and bad situation to be in, being as competitive as we are.
1: Right. I mean, what what's the good part of it, right? The good part of it is we are not going to be short of otolaryngologists, hooray. What's the good part of it? The fact that maybe by having a competitive situation where when not everyone gets in, maybe if we were really good at this, maybe we're getting slightly better people or people walk through to our right. And this is part of the mindset of otolaryngology, you know, which I think was revealed by everyone, well, freaking out basically about, I forget it was four or five years ago. We had a 10, I think, or 11 spots go unfilled in the match. And the following year it happened again, similar number. Of course, they were all snapped up within like moments or days or something. Why was that so upsetting to people, right? I think that's interesting. I think it says something about us as a field. I don't think people were that worried that we were gonna have like sub awesome people in the field. I think, I think it affected their sense of like, their personal sense of value a little bit. You know, like, well, I'm in this competitive field. I must be pleasant and slightly above average. Interestingly, this year, it looks like applications are down. I haven't seen the final numbers. That may prove to be wrong, I'm sorry, but uh, that's what I'm hearing from folks. I don't know if the pendulum is just swinging a little bit, but still definitely way more applicants and spots.
0: I think that's an interesting question, though, in terms of the question that, am I going to get in when you're uh, on the application side and on the other side, once you are in residency or practicing older neurologist, like, oh, I'm part of this amazing field. I mean, is that the right question to have? Is that the right mindset to have as the applicant and on the other side of it as Practicing otolaryngologists. And so, I guess my question is you know, is that the right mindset or is this changing? And sort of where are we now in terms of needs for our field and for those who are applying or training with us?
1: I think many of us have been shown, some of us always knew it, some of us were late to understand. I was, you know, that the best future for otolaryngology is really when the patients, the leaders, the practitioners are you know, all representative of each other. You know, we have the freshest ideas, the best connections, the most understanding. And that has not been the case, right? I mean, 80% of otolaryngologists are men from my era, all the the laryngosaurs, as we say, but the numbers are different, right? In the early, early career group trainees and graduate, they're 50-50 men and women, for example. I think that's, it may not be precisely so, but close. And so I think we want, and I'm when I say we, I, I do not speak for the American Academy of Otolaryngology. I don't. But I think many of us feel like the best future is that we normalize all career choices, that we have representation, and that we encourage folks with passion to find their way in otolaryngology, whether it's expressed through investigation, through community otolaryngology at the high level that it is clearly practiced across the country, through people who have that passion for that light bulb, you know, whatever it is you want to do. These things move forward as long as we're finding a fair and open door that represents, acknowledges, identifies spirit and desire and curiosity and concern and care as people walk through this door and make sure wherever they want to go within this journey that they have a way to do that. And the best version of us is that representative version of us. And I think we are headed that way. I truly do. I am incredibly optimistic about otolaryngology in terms of the actual practice of it. I think some of the things that are really challenging are clearly shocker financial. Uh, and that's important. Um, but in terms of the actuals of what we get to do in our part in society, I think we'll continue to grow and be rich. And I think we are going to get better and better because the field is turning around. It is becoming more representative, you know, both in the practitioners and in the leadership as we go along.
2: There's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, I want to dive into, you know, the normalizing career choices. Um, and maybe it would kind of help to give a sense of like where we are now. And you know, I'm in the middle of doing a lot of application reviews right now. And you know we have this standardized letter of recommendation form that a lot of applicants have. And when you look at it, under the global assessment, number two says commitment to academic medicine, the likelihood of pursuing a research slash academic career after residency. So that's like a data point on the letter of recommendation for students. And so the kind of underlying vibe there is that that's a better rating on that scale. And I just thought it was interesting that that's even on this form. I don't know. What do you think about that?
1: I think, and this is coming from a lifer, academic otolaryngologist, right? I'm this super subspecialist, 130 publication books, blah, 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 right? Professor, et cetera. Here we are. Academic otolaryngology has this remarkable, remarkable privilege to be there when people walk through the door of otolaryngology. And we are essentially creating a situation where those wonderful, caring, committed, hardworking people are wearing a mask. About, I don't know, a quarter, a third of them are walking through that door, concealing or subsuming their actual desires for their own careers or not revealing some of their feelings. I believe there is a spectacular journey for folks in academic otolaryngology. It worked for me, I like it. You know, was I good at it, bad at it? I don't know, but I was happy. But when we in academic otolaryngology, with your example, create this expectation like this is what we're looking for, and this is also, by the way, this is really probably better, I don't know that we're doing right by our people who are walking through the door. There are many programs who really beautifully do this where they normalize all the career pathways and they try to support and identify. There are programs like mine, which really are designed and open. I mean, all our, for example, at the University of Washington, we are very proud of the fact that we train surgeon scientists. Every one of our residents has six or seven years, all NIH funded through the training grant. And that's, that's what we're about. But as we look around, I think in many, many programs, the students aren't always comfortable talking about what they really want to do with their lives. And I don't think that's a great way to invite people into the house. I don't know how to change it. My friends in academic otolaryngology, they're not, they're not trying to impose on other people. They're just excited. They're excited for, they're, it's not bad. They're like, oh, wow, you want to do what I do? That's awesome. You know, so I, I don't know how to change the discussion. But I do think shining a light on the fact that that we are creating a situation where many, many of our folks in the beginning of their careers are finding themselves having to be a little disingenuous about really what they want from their own lives—you know, whether it's early applications, interviews, all that stuff—I don't think that's our best. I think we can do better.
0: Yeah, I think you know what's interesting here is the topic we want to talk about is who is a future otolaryngologist, but I think we need to step back and say, who are we? Who are our current otolaryngologists? Who are we as a field? And given the amount of growth in the last 20 years, especially in the last 10, in terms of subspecialization, technology, clinically, as well as who is practicing? I think that there is, I don't know, if identity crisis is the right word, but just who are we? Because there may need to be, I don't know whether it's a culture shift because, right, we're talking about this house or is it okay that, hey, every program might have its own different priorities? But when we talk to the medical students, how do we align with normalizing all career choices, helping that individual find value in deciding and having some sort of autonomy in what they want to do with their lives? Because I think this whole like getting into medical school, getting into a residency, you're relying on a match. And there's so much that you don't have control over that they're at you know, the mercy of other people as well as luck and numbers and the match and this and that, that at some point, as much as we're like, we need to help them figure themselves out, I feel like we need to kind of also have an idea of who we are too and be okay with, hey, there's a lot of us in academic medicine who maybe aren't quote publishing a ton or who are in academic medicine that, you know, may or may not love teaching as much. Or, you know what I mean? There there's a lot that's part of training and being an otolaryngologist.
1: There's a lot of positive trends, you know, in the stuff you talked on. So I am I really am very optimistic. Just a couple of things off the top of my head. You talked about teaching. One thing I've seen in my journey, I finished my residency in 97, so 25 years ago and finished my fellowship 24 years ago. The value of retail teaching has risen. It has become more valued in promotion. I don't know that it's been valued in FTEs and time, all of which are important. It is often expected work. It clearly falls differentially on different folks in their career. I I don't know this scientifically, but I'm guessing there's a gender difference for teaching expectations. Um, It's certainly different for where you are in your career. As someone who sat on promotion committees in my department and for our school of medicine, you know, it used to be teaching was like, oh yeah, everyone does that. But now it really is part of the portfolio in a way that I haven't seen before. So teaching is more valued than it used to be in my in my experience. The part I'm excited about what you talked about is really when you ask who we, who we are. I know from our um, it's not out yet the new socioeconomic survey from the Academy, but knowing the trends recently and having a little bit of a preview of that, it is clear that the O College of the future is more closely representative of the population as a whole. They're just our, More women and the woeful numbers of underrepresented minorities in otolaryngology has increased in our amongst our training numbers with this goal that this is better that we have more eyes more representation more connection that we're going to practice better healthcare. This isn't just about fairness. This is about the quality of care delivered. I would say that's the belief of of many of us in in academic leadership. So, the numbers are improved. The one of the things I'm most proud of. I'm getting on a little bit of a me section here. Sorry. You know my time in the academy is that with the guidance of our board of directors and our evp dr Danani. you know under my presidency we initiated a significant medical student engagement and the medical student group has grown from 20 members to a thousand members or something like that and the outreach included getting even down to or as early as high school students into our meetings identifying college opportunities for connections for visits and then of course mostly the medical students and looking for ways To navigate, particularly students who don't have home programs, uh, navigate them through the uh, mentorship program and other opportunities to prepare them for the match process. And I don't know how much it's going to matter, but I think it's positive. And having students invested in this process, right? The standard line, I use this line a lot, you know, like, don't just eat the cake, you know, help me bake the cake. We're all going to eat together. You know, I think that's a good leadership vibe. So I think the trend is very positive. There's was a long way to go, but I do think the trend is positive. And I'm sorry, I'm going to just go ahead and coda myself here. Just one thing: I'm very proud of my institution. Initiated at the University of Washington under the guidance of the program director, Dr. Tanya Meyer, my friend and colleague, but also really with the energy of our residents. Right, the trainees will be the trainers. Uh, initiated a distance traveled metric in our holistic uh, application review, and this was to have students offer. A narrative, optional two words, two paragraphs about their journey, and if their expression of any challenges they may they may have faced along the way that maybe didn't quite fit into a personal statement, it's often in there. But it was an option for them to offer this, and and the the genesis of this came from the idea of not that like oh so and so had it tough, let's do something for them, let's help them. That's a very human feeling, but the belief was that if folks accomplished under hardship that they were even more promising as a leader in the future so it was a contentious discussion at times it was signed off by our dio with good support all those steps were taken carefully but i think that does get us to a better place where we are looking for quality in the future and identifying people from different backgrounds different journeys will probably be the best thing i mean how many people in your residency class how many of you were parents for doctors? Right? It is a non representative number. Uh, And it's not just from exposure or genetics, right? It's financial, it's economic. This is why it makes me particularly uneasy when I hear our passionate students wanting to go into laryngology and they don't match because it's tough. And uh, they're offered, they said, well, why don't you take a research year? Okay, that's a good strategy. But what are we saying? What are we saying about research? You know, here I am, I've dedicated my life to academic investigation and scholarship. And I'm surrounded by people who do basic science research like, well, if you cared about research, why weren't you doing it before? It is unambiguously a strategy to demonstrate earnestness, have a publication, all of a sudden you're a better otolaryngology candidate. I mean, if you were interested in research, why weren't you doing it already? And who gets to take that research here, right? Somebody with, with money. Are we really getting our best out of the future? I don't know the answer. I mean, it's lovely training and experience, but I do wonder if we're doing the best by our students in that regard.
2: Well, I'm I'm glad you brought up the unmatched students, because I think that's a, a really tough position to be in. And more and more students are asking me about taking the research year on the front end before they go unmatched, because they're worried about not matching. And that's a big ask to, you know, have someone kind of put their life on hold and do a year of research if they're not actually passionate about research.
1: It's a mask. It's the mask they're wearing to get through the door.
2: And there's no guarantee that they're going to match into ENT after, though there are no guarantees, right? And so it's really hard when you're in the advising seat talking to these students about what to do. But I mean, what other things are there? How can you take an application and make it stronger other than, you know, going and spending your research? Is there anything else that you've talked to students about?
1: I'm not the most up-to-date on the rules, so I hope I'm not wrong on this. Or well, I don't mind being wrong, I just hope I'm not telling you wrong information. <laughs> the ownership otolaryngology training ownership of the intern year like increasing ownership from one month to two months to six months has also compounded this because the best advice i would give to unmatched folks who just they were passionate about otolaryngology but like as an investigational career wasn't their thing i would advise them in the past to do their internship right that doubled the number of spots they could do they could go into empty r2 spots or they could start over that can still happen today you can advise someone to go be in a program do your surgical internship and just be around, be awesome, do your auto rotation, demonstrate earnestness and quality, et cetera, et cetera. That's a good strategy, but will result in having to do another year. Either way. Um, in the old days, when there wasn't as much otolaryngology in the first year, you did, if you did an internship, you were just slotted into an R2 spot. You didn't have to redo your time. So I do not know if that alone is worth turning over everyone else's otolaryngology residency. I don't think so, but that would be one one way to do it.
0: I think this is interesting because it kind of goes to another question of who is our future and is our recruitment and the way in which we match aligned in the sense of when you don't match, do we have other pathways? You know, are there opportunities for, for example, I don't know, community involvement, outreach, health equity, you know, research, whatever that may be through otolaryngology, but not necessarily a quote year of clinical or basic science research. And that that might be more some soul searching from our end as we continue to identify sort of what are our values, especially as, you know, the way in which we review applications and match and go through that has changed significantly in the last two years. And as we continue to get to know our trainees better, too, because it's hard to advise. Like, what is the advice to give is the big question, right?
1: I love that question, right? There's there's absolute intrinsic value, joy, learning, discovery in basic science, clinical science investigation. It's a part of what I do, and I even asked one of my colleagues, who's a professor of biology, uh, actually a chair of biology in a West, uh, an unnamed West Coast institution. I said, you know, hey, what is it? What do you guys think when you get a student who didn't get into medical school, or they're showing up in your lab, really just due to do research, but they their intrinsic zeal is sort of and mostly just getting in and this this professor recounted that you know there is joy and opportunity absolutely the story of the student who didn't have exposure got some exposure and boom like career launched you know those are real stories that really happens on the other hand it's an opportunity to engage with a bright mind and so there's there's i don't want to say a transactional element to it but folks recognize this process And there isn't, I didn't sense a lot of negative or hard feelings about that, but that it was a process. It was somewhat transactional. You know, here you go. I'll show you the way, but I see where you're going. I hope you're excited about what you do. I love the idea of having other pathways for scholarship during that time. I don't know where the support would come from for this, but I do think
0: that's exciting. I mean, I think in terms of like the role of the physician or you know, yes, there's a direct patient care role. And yes, there is a uh, research role. That's the meat, right? That's who we are. That's the meat. But there's entrepreneurship. There is, you know, getting involved in communities. There's a lot of students that apply to residency who've had several years in other career fields, whether it's completely different or along the line, there are lessons learned. I guess my question is, do we value those enough? Do we look at them It's different, but how do you put it all on the same playing field, right?
1: Pure opinion on my part. But um, why do people get excited about a residency applicant, right? What what gets folks excited? I do not have a broad view of this. I have a deep view of this, but I'm not sure I have my eyes that open. I think for a lot of folks, they're looking for ease and legacy. They want to make sure they're not going to have a hard time. someone to really believe in. And they love the excitement of that. You're like, wow, Dr. X is going somewhere. I want to be part of that because I want to help too. It's enthusiasm. But they're also looking for like, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm not, what did they say in this one letter? Ooh, that sounds like that's going to be trouble. Uh, I'm not going to, I'm not doing that. They're, They're trying to avoid trouble and they're looking for legacy. They want to be at a meeting and look, you know, Dr. X is on the podium and say, Dr. X, oh yeah, that's my resident, right? it's not putting down other people. It's being excited about what you do. So it's not an, I don't see it as a negative, but I think that's where a lot of this stuff comes from. So when there are folks who have, and this is where I think that this current generation of leaders, you folks in medicine is doing probably a better job. I sense that most of us in my generation, not the best people, but most of us, I'm in the most category. Um, you know, we're cautious about non-traditional students, people who, like if somebody had an MBA or somebody like, what, what is that? Who are you? You know, and not seeing the positive of the, of the blend of ideas and experiences and you're entrepreneur, what you're in it for the money, you know, get out of here. You know, I'm projecting a bit, admittedly, but yeah, there was this, there was this, uh, you know, you're not us. What are you doing here? A bit of a vibe that would come up. When I talk to our junior faculty who are absolutely better at this than I am, uh, you know, when we have our residency reviews and that kind of stuff. They just see the magic in people, you know, like every donkey. I think I can see, I think I read people well and all that, but I think our junior faculty see the promise in people and they see the value in the different journeys. So on, I mean, on a retail basis, case by case. So I'm, I'm again, hopeful there that who you are when you approach, again, getting back to the house and the door, the analogy, who you are when you approach that, I think is really, um, that has, I think in a very good way, broadened in the last few years. I'm sorry, and I know you have other stuff you want to ask. I want to just tap back a couple minutes ago. Some of the stuff I'm hearing about the new survey, I'm sensing there's a little bit of a pullback. The distribution of otolaryngologists and people who choose to do otolaryngology, the distribution of otolaryngologists, you know, like a lot of specialties is clumped in big cities, you know. And I don't know what we're going to do as a field to make sure we have otolaryngology care delivered across the country that's not any one person's responsibility dear young doctor it's not your job to take care of everybody it's your job to be happy and do good you know i mean the last part was a little editorializing but um your job is to be happy you don't owe anybody anything you may owe money and which is a big part of the issue but your career choice you don't owe anybody anything whatever stuff you have with your parents or your colleagues or your friends or your professors it is your life man It is your life. Follow your joy. But when we think as a field to make sure we have otolaryngology in a less populated part of the country, where is that going to come from? You know, I think normalizing, again, the career choices will also do that. If everybody's a subspecialist, I make no apology for subspecialty medicine. I do that for a living. But I think if we make sure that in training, we have exposure to comprehensive otolaryngology within the academic training. I think that's great. I think folks in the traditional private practice model, which is absolutely not dying at all. In fact, there's some, there's some very positive trends in that regard. I would love to see more training exposure there. I think a lot of the academics have a very mixed set of feelings about these doctors, to be frank, in terms of their training. Like, well, I do rhinology all day, every day. You know, what, what can Dr. X show them? You know, I get it. But boy, Dr. X can show our residents a lot. I think some of our programs who have these, these exposures to a comprehensive practice, those are some of the favorite rotations of our residents. I mean, I hear this from everybody. You know, who, who are we? You know, what are we trying to do? Do we do better as a field if in training we expose folks to all career paths? Are we enriching and helping our broader community and society in the long run? I think so. It's just hard to get done. If this were envisioned biotolaryngology leadership. and I don't know who does this, RSC, Opto, et cetera, et cetera. But if we're looking for the best long-term for our students and our patients, not us, that's what we do.
2: There's so much there. And I, I, I agree with I you. I think went on
1: too long. No, I, think no, I, no, no. I think I went on too long.
2: <laughs> no, no, no. It, it's, it, there's, I, I agree with you so much. And, you know, talking about how we, you know, look at those doctors on the podium or doing, you know, whatever great research with their NIH grant or whatever it is, and we're so proud of them. I think part of normalizing the different career choices is also holding up our colleagues who are in private practice and who are seeing patients all day long, which is hard, <laughs> which is a, it's something to hold up as well, you know, giving good patient care and spending that extra 30 minutes that you don't have with that patient who needed you that day. And I think it is important for our, you know, residents and trainees to see that and for us to, as a field, hold that up as something that is, you know, valuable as well. And not just like these, you know, super academic research people. Those are, you know, our shining stars and everybody else is just like, Oh, well, they're just seeing patients because it's hard to see patients. And I think if we look at these students who are coming in and if they're allowed to say you know what i really want to go back to my small town in east texas and be an ent there if they can be honest with that and say that on their application and it doesn't matter you know this checkbox about their commitment to academic medicine if we can also look at that and say that's a great thing like you have a lot of passion let's help you know give you the skill set so that you can direct that to do good things wherever you are and take care of patients which is the goal I think that's really, you know, culturally, we just have to come to the place where we recognize that there's value in, you know, the different ways that we practice and that there's different rooms in the house. (laughs) And you may prefer to hang out in the living room, but it's okay. Like you still need to have, you know, a dining room and a kitchen and a bedroom and this and that. um, And we still need everybody kind of doing what they're passionate about and working towards the things that they want to do and that that's valuable, too.
1: I credit my colleague and our, our argument partner uh, Dr. Sujana Chandrasekhar her and I were talking about this this topic and she's one who really gave me that term I was talking about this the the interest I have in this and you know she said it very clearly you know I don't mean to speak for her but you know we want to normalize all career paths in otolaryngology and that that's the term I don't know how to do it but I do know that having this conversation is important I don't know if it'll open eyes but it's better for the field.
0: I like the house and I like uh, one big open floor plan. I've never liked a house with a lot of rooms. Just open it all up and you got your parts of the house <laughs> that all kind of see each other, but you can like still do what you need to uh, and where you like to be. I think what's exciting is that there's an openness and an excitement to really help people find themselves and their passions, you know, and be okay with their choices because that's also what allows you to sustain yourself in the game, right? Practicing being a physician and practicing medicine, you know, we talk about burnout and wellness and, you know, so many things, especially in the last 20 years, that without being okay and comfortable with other practice types or career choices, we're going to lose good people in, you know, otolaryngology within short periods of time. But before we kind of go into that, There are some constants, though, would you not say, in terms of values that are kind of consistent? Like, do you think there's like a constant in otolaryngology, our value set um, as a field, our qualities?
1: I'm very proud to say I don't think it's different than other fields. I think it's really about caring. It's about communicating. And I don't know that it's much more than that. I think folks enter with different levels of insulation and protection, much of it's financial. And when we look at our colleagues and they are, they are 100% caring and communicative, but their joy in the professional part of their lives is high or maybe low in some cases. It's not because the positives aren't there, it's just that the grind gets pretty tough. You know, especially when you're when you're walking around the house with two hundred thousand dollars of debt, it's very hard to overcome. And I'm happy to say that the values in otolaryngology are as simple and lovely as they always have been. It's about caring and communication. I think some of the frustrations that I sense have to do with the experiences of folks in early career. Is some of the erosion of time that comes from whether it's the burden of the EHR, the corrosion of autonomy, right? These are all things that dinosaurs complain about too, like me, but I already have a house. That's the difference. You can already have a CV, you know, it's one thing to grumble about, oh, it used to be great, you know, and believe me, the generation in front of me, we, they, they, oh, it's terrible now. I thought it was pretty good. I had a pretty sweet run, but I had a lot of cushion. You know, I had a lot of financial support and didn't have debt and I mean, all this stuff. So I do think that the values of communication, curiosity, caring are pretty timeless. I do think otolaryngology, it's longer training. It pays more than most fields, less than some surgical fields, but it's a lot of money. But I do think it gets corroded by some of those forces. I do like poking at my colleagues who say how hard it was to be a resident compared to now. And they're really wrong. It's different. It's different hard. I think in most ways that I see, it's harder to be a trainee now. And I was from the land of, you know, in-house call, every other night call, an internship. And even in parts of otolaryngology residency, it was a lot of work. But, you know, back then, I mean, sure, you had 14 patients, but five of them were on, like, ANSEF. Four of them had a drain. Three of them were waiting for a ride. And it's not untrue today, but now, man, if you have 10 patients in the hospital, four of them are on, like, ECMO. They would have been not made out of being the ICU, you know, back then. So the acuity is spectacular. The intrusion into the trainees lives, you know, like it is for all of us, you know, after hours, I mean, when I was a resident, sure. You'd work 36 hours. That was real and it wasn't that great. But when you were done, you were done, you, unless you were the chief resident, you didn't hear boo to the next day, boo, no phone call, no email, no text period. Okay. That's gone, right? The residents, it is not easy. So I hope people recognize this. Also, this one, I think this is also a little bit provocative, but I don't think the residents feel the mastery that we imagined we had back then. We had a very busy residency at UC San Diego. We had great people, had great clinical material, quite a bit of, you know, a blend of autonomy, I would say. And, you know, when you were done, I mean, how many operations were there to really master 30 years ago? You know, there weren't five different frontal sinus operations. There weren't 42 different versions of laryngology. There weren't five laryngologists to learn their five versions from. You imagined that you were approaching attending quality in doing an open neck dissection or basic ESS or things like that. And there was a sense of clinical mastery that just is not present today because of the understandable changes in autonomy, right? We just don't have residents flying solo like we used to. And the breadth and depth of the field, there aren't, there weren't five rhinologists in one department that you had to learn five different ways of doing something. Do you feel like a master when you do that? No, you're just like a spectacular observer, hands-on, and you're a superb resident, but I think people don't feel the mastery. So the corrosion of time, the financial pressures, and then the, the, what I sense is just, just, you never have that imagined mastery. And I said, imagined mastery, I didn't say we were good at it. We thought we were good at it. I think that affects us. So for for all the dinosaurs who think it was harder back then, I don't think they're right.
0: No, it it makes sense. So I guess on that note, and you can answer these how, how you want, and I'm tossing this at Ashley as well, but who is our future? What do they need? And how do we keep up?
1: I think many of us believe in this vision that the best practice of otolaryngology is when the needs are understood The infrastructure is good, that the people doing the practice, delivering the care are led by people and take care of people, that it's all representative, that it's not just one group taking care of another group, training another group. You know, we see this in science. We see this in leadership. You know, we see these studies and these papers and it makes sense. There's a fairness element to it, which is unambiguous, but there's a quality element that will ultimately be the driver. So how do we do that? I do not know how to overcome the financial part of it. That's a governmental issue. I don't know. I mean, you see things like the initiative at NYU and other places where uh, there's no tuition or whatever it is. Some debate as to what exactly the impact of that is. But what we can do to keep the door as wide open as possible is to do outreach, start in high schools, start in colleges, and then normalize career paths and include breadth of training within our training programs. I would love to see that requirement have a have an actual community training requirement. I think that would be really healthy for the field. I think those things will help because when I go to, when I live in a more rural county in Washington state and there's one otolaryngologist who's there two days a week, I'm glad for that doctor. I mean, but I'm worried about the healthcare of those patients and it's hard to replace that doctor. Call is a big issue rurally. So I think our best future is when we keep the door more broadly open to all starting points, identify the journeys people have been on. I mentioned in the University of Washington, I'm very proud of our distance traveled metric. I don't know if that's the answer, but knowing that where people have come from and what they've overcome is a predictor of their quality in the future. I think those are interesting things, but I think outreach will help. You know, I think I forget the number. It's low single digits of African Americans in our laryngology. It's two percent or something. Those outreaches will improve care in the future. Uh, that work that is being done. I don't know if we need to turn up the amplifier on that or not, but I think that's, that's our best outreach. Subspecialty care is interesting. You know, so many of our graduates do fellowships. I'm all for it. I run a fellowship. I was a fellow. I love it, right? It's my life. Um, So I don't think it's bad medicine, but I do think we're going to see a little bit of a pendulum swing back. If you want to do a fellowship and you want to be an otologist and practice in a big city, there's probably eight other otologists already there which is okay. People put up your shingle, be awesome. You're going to be fine. But um, I think people will start to feel that it's going to be harder to work in your subspecialty in the city you want to work in than it was 10, 15 years ago. I don't know if that will affect career choices. I don't think it's going to drive people out of the cities. I think most of those answers will come from like healthy, positive engagement with APPs and their their capacity to deliver otolaryngology care in partnership with otolaryngologists nationwide. I think that's probably our best direction. That's where we're going, I think.
2: Yeah. Outreach is definitely important, getting people early, because we are one of those fields, you know, unless you yourself had tubes or had a tonsillectomy when you were a kid, it's common that students will reach out to me and they're like, I didn't even know about ENT. And, you know, now I'm just discovering it and it's like at the end of my third year. And, you know, so, I mean, I think being able to get out there, you know, at, at UT Southwestern, we've got into the anatomy lab to start kind of working with them during that first year medical school and kind of point out some clinically relevant things in the anatomy lab, which has kind of helped people know about us earlier. Um, we have a great student interest group that has been helping, but definitely, um, you know, even reaching out and getting to students before they even hit medical school is great. But I think truly one of the key places to make an impact is that residency application review committee point. And the people who review applications, those are the gatekeepers. And I think, you know, even if we're great at recruitment, we have to start having these conversations, you know, as a culture in otolaryngology and say, you know, hey, we need to acknowledge and normalize, like you said, normalize different career paths and make it okay for students to be open and honest about what their 10-year plan is. Because, you know, that's a common question in an interview. What's your 10-year plan? And if you know that you're passionate about community care, but you're nervous to say that, then you might say, I don't know. Well, it's not okay to say, I don't know. In an interview, they're going to think, okay, Slacker doesn't even have a plan. Um, but then if you, you know, lie, people can see through that too. So that doesn't work. So really, I think the the big take-home points from this conversation are that, you know, we all need to kind of help realize our own bias in being excited about people who want to be like us which is normal and okay it's it's human to kind of be flattered at someone who's wanting to be you know an academic ENT like you are but to also say hey like you want to do some sort of global outreach you want to move to you know Africa and do otolaryngology there like that is great also and i'm going to help you get there and so i think the the big part is getting to the people who are reviewing the applications and actually opening the door for people to come into the otolaryngology house.
0: I think you make a really great point because otherwise we're going to lose people, right? Like people that apply and do medicine, I think the hardworking, super intelligent, they're all that, right? And so, and I think that this generation, I mean, they're a lot more open, right? Because everything's changing so fast. So, you're going to have more people that want to do community outreach or travel and practice internationally or in different community settings. And, and the other thing is just because they are interested in a community practice now doesn't mean that, you know, they might make changes and practice. They may not be doing the 30 to 40 year same community practice maybe that we were seeing 30 years ago. And so I, I think that if we don't kind of understand uh, and think about and constantly reevaluate who are we, who is our department, our division, what's important. But who is applying? Who are, who are our medical students? Who, who's in our community? Who are our patients? Who are our high school students? How do we all kind of fit? Because it's like a fortress not only to get into oral but sometimes it's a fortress for patients to find us too. Like, why is access to who we are, whether it's as a medical student, high school student, or patients so difficult, right? And I think you're right, both of you guys, in the sense of there's got to be some openness and normalization so that we take some of these barriers away. because otherwise. We're going to miss out. Like, we're going to lose that group that is a little bit other, I don't know if progressive is the right word, we're just going to be incomplete. Maybe that's too strong to say, but.
1: I think leaving things unchallenged is not our best future. Bit of a double negative, but, but yeah, no, I think it's time for this conversation. And once again, our students and our trainees will probably be the clearest voice on this, but it's hard to speak up. Um, Because who's right? Who's right near your fellowship letters or your job letters? And there's this—it's such a teeny field. You know, I do my fellowship. I have one fellow a year, like five, uh, five learning colleges, one fellow a year. Like, where is that person going for their job? You know? And there's a—even if I'm like this moderately noble person at times, I realize that the person feels very beholden, and so I don't know. I try to keep that in mind when I interact with trainees. I try my best to take myself out of my advice to them which is not easy now i'm pretty far along i'm kind of very much in the denouement of my career but but i try to take myself out of my advice to the trainees and i think just having folks who have influence and some power or, or you know have the capacity for sponsorship i think taking yourself out of it is really a healthy exercise you know who is this really for who is this good for these words i'm saying who who is getting something out of this, and I think that's a healthy that's a healthy stance to take.
2: All right. Well, rounding this out, anything that we have, you know, missed or failed to touch on, or any parting words,
1: I remain incredibly excited about otolaryngology. That the people that show up at this door bring curiosity, joy, determination professionalism in ways I have not seen in years. I don't want to comment on my current job, but I think our, our, they're the most professional people I know. Our trainees, dear God, why can't I be like a grown-up like you? And when I, I talk, I say the same stuff to my other dinosaur colleagues around the country, and they say the same thing. People grumble about residents, don't get me wrong, because they do some dumb stuff sometimes. But talk about the actual, like, how you behave. The lessons are to be learned, and I think the the trainees are great models for this. So I am absolutely delighted. Look at the cool stuff the field is doing. We're attracting good people. I just wanna make sure we keep the door open. So if we can hold on to the magic, hold on to the gifts that the trainees and the the, the lights they shine for us, I think we're really looking good in the future. I don't know how to overcome the challenges of the financial pressures, the trainee debt. Is incredibly significant. I think it's a barrier to quality in the long run due to whether it's a career choice or the, who it is that, are we really getting the blend of people? Or is it still going to be like half doctor's kids? I was a doctor kid, not my fault. I mean, I didn't choose that, but it certainly served me in any event. So I'm incredibly hopeful. I see the future full of really cool innovation matched with this nice community outreach and blend, like a, like a renaissance of community care, whether it's through a, the, the refocus and passion and energy of health equity, or it's just a realization of its significance for quality community-wide. I see all those things happening despite some significant headwinds, and it is carried by those people who are freshly in the door.
0: Well said. I know. I'm like, I love the residents as well.
1: They're amazing. They're amazing
0: people. They're amazing. They always they make me better. They kind of keep you open and excited about everything.
2: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Marathi, for taking the time and for reaching out to us to talk today. We appreciate you. And for um, listeners who want to chat with you more or reach out, are you on the socials, as we say?
1: Like every old person, I'm on Twitter, but nothing else. <laughs> Special thanks to my colleagues who helped me, Dr. Chandrasekar, as s Dr. Dani. Dr. Uh, Lee Eisenberg and folks around the country I've talked to about just where we're going in the future and just, and then again, mostly the trainees.
2: Yep. So keep the conversation going wherever you are, then reach out to us. Thanks for stopping by the show today.
1: You guys are doing cool stuff. Laryngology (laughs) needs this, really. It's just, it's what we need. Peace.
0: (laughs) Thank you. you so much for listening. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe, rate the podcast five stars, and share with a friend. If you have any questions or comments, direct message us at underscore Backtable ENT on Instagram, LinkedIn, or Twitter. Backtable ENT is hosted by Gopi Shaw and Ashley Agan.
1: Our audio team lead is Karen Gannon with support from Caleb Hodson,
2: Josh McWhorter, and Ness Smith-Savadoff. Design and Digital
1: Marketing, led by Brian Schmitz, with support from
0: Taylor's Version Hess, social
2: media and PR by Chi Ding. Thanks again for listening and see you next week.